Hi, Damien Marcus from 100 Not Out here. MP. Yes, Damo. We all know the importance of having a diary, but who wants a boring old day planner? Not me. Enter the journey of me. Ta-da! The incredible eight-month wellness journal designed especially for wellness peeps like you. Yes, Damo, this beautiful eight-month wellness guide is filled with questions, planners, exercises, reflective notes, and more. Endorsed by the Up For A Chat girls and loved the world over, the journey of me is a must-have if you're ready to live your best life for life. To purchase your very own journey of me and receive a free set of inspirational postcards, simply enter the code COUCH at www.wellandnew.com. That's www.w-e-l-l-i-n-e-u-x.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favourite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm rejoined by one of my favourite interviews that we did on That Paleo Show with a guy by the name of Ben Cove. Now, some of you might be listening to that thinking, well, I don't remember hearing Ben Cove on That Paleo Show, and that's because... I didn't record it properly. We somehow lost the recording, so we're having to do it again. So Ben's back on the Paleo Show for the second time, but for the first time for you guys, which is going to be great because you're going to get all of the amazing information he shared with us the first time and maybe even have a chance to expand on it a little bit. So welcome to the show, exercise scientist Ben Cove. Hey, how you doing, mate? Good, mate. Great to have you on the show again. Again, for the second time. <laughs> right. it, actually, it actually gives me a bit of chance to think about my answers to my questions now. So nice. it's, not all, it's not all as spontaneous as last time. So we'll see how we go. Well, that could be, that could be good. That could be bad. We'll see how we go, hey? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. All right. So let's start from the start. What is an exercise scientist? Um, so an exercise scientist, uh, we require a three-year uni degree. Um, basically... Uh, we are higher education qualified trainers, um, among other things. Um, obviously, we can go into areas of research and, and whatnot and pursue and pursue other areas. Um, I guess my my two big areas are uh, obviously strength and conditioning, um, having a pretty extensive powerlifting background, um, and also uh, I do a lot of injury rehab as well. Um, is uh, part of Part of my training has been a, um, a graduate program in clinical rehabilitation, which has given me a bit of an understanding of um, neuromuscular concerns and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, fair, a fair portion of my day is looking at people's backs and whatnot and working out what's going on there. Nice. All right, so how did you get into this in the first place, Ben? Where did you start on this journey? Um, I think I just started like everyone, to be honest. Um, I actually remember there was a, a gym down, down the road from me uh, when the, the uh, Sydney Olympics were on in 2000, obviously, and they did a free two-week membership while the Sydney Olympics were on. Um, and at the time, I think I actually mentioned this, the first podcast we did, at the time I was, um, I was sitting at home and I was literally eating bags of chips for breakfast, like literally, and, and eating meat pies for lunch. And, um, and on top of that, I'm also a type 1 diabetic. And, and I remember I was sitting at home and, and not long before that free membership came up, I remember thinking, if I don't do something about my health, I'm going to die. And um, 
anyway, the, the membership uh, at that gym down the road popped up and I sort of started there and took my two-week membership and had absolutely no idea what I was doing whatsoever and didn't want to listen to anyone anyway um, and just kind of started from there. And then I guess it just sort of morphed into over the years, I sort of moved into, I toyed with various martial arts for a while. So I did a little bit of jiu-jitsu and a little bit of Muay Thai and eventually found my way into powerlifting and um, have been involved in the powerlifting community for quite some time now anyway and had a couple of Australian records and whatnot, which was which is all nice. Um, in the process of that, I, I guess I started personal training. I did a bit of a training course with TAFE and I just started coaching people out of a, a little gym and um, went, well, how do I get better at this? So I uh, went and enrolled myself in a uni course and did my undergrad and then I sort of finished my undergrad and went, oh, that was great. What do I do now? So I went and enrolled myself in a master's program and now I'm kind of three quarters of the way through a, uh, a master's in strength and conditioning. So um, yeah, it's just all snowballed is the, long, is the short, <laughs> short version of a, of a long story anyway. And and all of that, I guess, makes you a very well-trained trainer. I mean, you know, many people who are trainers at gyms and, and the like, you know, might do a weekend course as far as study to, to do that sort of thing. So what is the extra information and knowledge that you gain from, from doing all that extra education? You know, what's missing out there in the health world when it comes to fitness? Um, look, obviously, I think the education standards on the whole need need to be addressed. Let's not beat around the bush on that one. We we can talk about anecdotal case studies of vocational trained personal trainers um, forever and a day, and there are some pretty horrific stories out there. Um, the education standards need to be changed. Um, there's also, I was, I was looking, or if you look, at the Fitness Australia Industry Trends Report, which was published in 2013, 2012, 2013. Um, there's actually some interesting statistics in there that the vast majority of personal trainers only last in the industry for 12 months. Now, that in itself suggests that the workforce is fairly inexperienced. Um, on top of that, new trainers entering the industry are required to do 20 whole hours of placement, last time I checked. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I'm sure you're sitting there as a Cairo going, 20 hours of placement? Whoa. Um, yeah, look, um, new trainers entering the industry have to do their placement hours as well, and they have to be mentored to some degree. And what we're seeing is because the vast majority of the industry are 12 months or less experience, we've kind of got inexperienced people mentoring even more inexperienced people and that in itself is obviously a concern um you know you you and i are probably the same in the sense that we seek out very experienced people um you know i personally i can probably count on one hand how many people i actually talk to or listen to face to face that i actually take on board what they say about the human body and about training and whatnot um so yeah there's yeah there's some issues there that the the industry is struggling with um and there's no clear end in sight at the moment to be brutally honest but we'll see we'll see how we go over the next few years yeah well we had a great interview on on that paleo show just a couple of weeks ago with a good friend of mine as well called Duncan Maxwell. And you, you may know Duncan. He's an Adelaide boy as well. Yeah, I saw, I saw you interview Duncan. I honestly haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet, but I really do actually want to get to that because Duncan is a really interesting guy anyway. Yeah, it was a great interview, but he was sort of expressing some similar concerns there as well. So it's sort of a, it, it's a, 
you know, familiar themes coming through there. So I guess for people listening in, you know, if they're looking for a personal trainer, what sort of questions should they ask? Um, look, to be really honest, I think the first, the first port of call is we, we need to upskill the whole industry to degrees. Um, the vocational training sectors failed, um, you know, just to put it bluntly. Um, if you're looking for, if you're looking for a trainer, look for someone who's at least got an undergraduate degree. I know some of the undergraduate programs are not super brilliant, um, and then probably not all encompassing. And I'm probably testament to that. Um, however, it does show that you've at least been around for two or three years. Um, I did some tutoring earlier this year as well. I was tutoring some of the undergraduates coming out of UniSA and these, these guys and girls were all third year, uh, about to graduate into the workforce, so to speak. And a lot of them were coming up to me after three years of uni and kind of going, Ben, I don't feel super ready for the workforce right now. Now, to me, that very statement or question, however you want to, however you want to define it, is actually a positive thing because it says they're coming out and they're going, I have to learn a lot more than what I do. And they, the opposing side is true. I remember I, I spoke to someone on a gym floor a couple of months ago and I asked this guy, oh, who's, do, who's doing your programming for you? And he goes, oh, I do my own programming. Okay, that's cool. I do the same personally. And he goes, yeah, because I'm a master trainer. I'm fully qualified. And I went, oh, okay, I'm studying my master's degree. And to be honest, every day I wake up and I realize I don't know shit. And I hope you don't mind me swearing on your podcast. Um, <laughs> You can kind of see the mentality difference between the two parties anyway is is the uni graduates are, are very much seeking out information, a very evidence-based practice as well, I might add, um, versus the vocational guys are very, I've done my course, I know everything there is to know, um, let's, you know, this is it, let's do it this way. So, yeah. Choose, choose your poison anyway. <laughs> so you mentioned before that like some horror stories with the trainers and perhaps some of the stuff you're alluding to there, but I mean, what sort of stuff are you seeing out there in the industry? Um, look, obviously there's, there's a complete lack, there's a complete lack of evidence-based practice at the moment. So um, we're seeing a lot of trainers that are just either unaware of what evidence-based practice is or they're just simply choosing to ignore it. Um, I've had um, statements in terms like F science thrown in my face. Um, I mean, there's just uh, a lot of the movement standards I see on gym floors are quite poor as well. Um, A lot of trainers just don't have that intricate understanding of how squat mechanics work or how press mechanics work, Um, or, you know, probably taking a step back, that anatomical understanding of this is the way a shoulder works or this is this is the way a hip works and i think one one interesting um sort of case study to that is i was talking to a physio friend of mine and we were talking about shoulder impingement one of my sort of bread and butters has been become rehabbing shoulder impingements because they just seem to be coming out at a million miles an hour from gym floors at the moment i was talking to a physio mate of mine and we were talking about the upright row and we were just sort of talking about it, and then um, he goes, you know the upright row is the same anatomical position as the Hawkins impingement test? And I went, ah, oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? And then we realised that essentially an upright row is just loading an impingement test that physios and I'm assuming chiros have probably used for the last 15, 20 years. 
Um, and then ironically, just the other day, I saw a study, a study pop up in my um, Facebook feed, which, which went some way to, it was an observational study anyway, but found that people that partook in a lot of upright rows were more predisposed to shoulder impingements than people that didn't partake in upright rows. And I went, ah, funny about that. So, yeah, um, yeah, the, the anecdotal case stories can go on forever and a day. Um, but, yeah, on the whole, I think we just need to push a bit more of an evidence-based practice approach and we just need to be a little bit more thorough in the way that we we train these guys in understanding movement mechanics and and physiology and and whatnot and just having a little bit more in-depth understanding of the way the human body works so when you talk about movement standards i mean you're obviously talking about technique primarily so what uh, what sort of issues are the most common ones you're seeing out there in terms of exercise technique like what are people doing wrong um Probably the, the big ones I see um, uh, are either uh, movement cueing. So, for example, I was talking to a girl on the gym floor yesterday where just the sequence in which she was moving her squats was incorrect. Um, she was Her knees are trapping forward first, then her hips are trapping back. That was putting her into a quarter squat position where she kind of had nowhere to go. Um, so the sequencing of movement is one that I see quite often, but probably the big one I see more than anything is just the mobility issues. Um, like as we spoke last time, I, I just did six weeks working in a gym in New South Wales. And, um, when I rocked up there, everyone across the board just had really tight ankles for whatever reasons. They just came in, they just had really super tight ankles. Um, so yeah, it's things like ankle mobility. Hip mobility is a big one I see every day. Um, and also quite often with hip mobility, I will see lower back issues as well. So I don't think I've ever seen someone with lower pain that has good hip mobility. Um, so that that's always a big one. Um, shoulder mobility is obviously one these days as well because everyone's sitting at desks all day and, and cranked up over a keyboard. So... Yeah, it, it tends, from what I see, it tends to be the mobility side of things. Once we get people in a position where they can actually move, then we just got to sequence the movement cues in the right way, and it tends to work really well. Okay, so let's have a, let's have a chat about some of those. So ankle mobility, you've said, is a big one. So what yep. can people be doing to help improve their ankle mobility? Um, probably the big one, girls, get out of your high heels. Um, let's just get that one out of the way straight nice. away. <laughs> Um, yeah, get out of your high heels. Um, I know there is a long-running debate in the literature about um, shoes at the moment, so whether we wear clod shoes, so big running shoes, or whether we wear a minimal shoe like a, um, a Vibram or a Nike Free or something like that. Um, what I've seen in the literature is, is debating that in terms of running performance and in terms of injury. Day-to-day, so just when you're, you're hacking around day-to-day, I tend to recommend to my clients that are always wearing a flat shoe, so either a minimal shoe or, if possible, bare feet. Nice. Um, I know that's always possible. I mean, if you're a tradie and you're, and you're laying bricks for a living, you probably don't want to be running around in bare feet. Um, so, yeah, from an ankle point of view, probably definitely looking at the footwear day-to-day because you've got to remember we spend the better part of 10 hours of our day on our feet. And then you come into the gym and I get you for three minutes to work on your ankle mobility before I bung you into a squat rack. Um, so, yeah. Uh, other things you can do, just obviously stretching the calves, foam rolling as much as you can. You know, keep a foam roller at home. Keep one at your gym. You know, if 
Yeah, I've strategically got foam rollers all over the place. I'm actually looking at one now that's got my name on it after this. Um, so, yeah, and then there's there's various um, various stretches that I get people to work, work through, so just activation drills and stretches and whatnot. Um, and then obviously just squatting. If we can get people to squat, that just obviously just helps free up the ankles as well. So, um, yeah, that's it's yeah, it's pretty pretty simple issue. I to be honest, it's just yeah, flat shoes and a bit of mobilisation, and it tends to sort itself out over time. And so, with the squatting to improve ankle mobility, are you better off doing like repeated squats or more like just hanging in a dead squat? A combination of the two. Um, so quite often what I do, say, for example, if I've got a new client presenting to me, um, I'll start them in a bodyweight squat position. Um, and part of my movement screening is actually bodyweight squats. Um, and I'll look at various things in that. Um, if they are immobile in the ankles or the hips, then I'll just put them into a bodyweight squat. And I'll just say, just hang out down there. Just spend 30 seconds down there. Um, then I look at specific issues and I start mobilizing from there. One of my recommendations to people, particularly office workers and people that sit around all day, is every hour, stand up, put yourself into the bottom of a bodyweight squat, hang out there for 30 seconds. If you, nice. can do that, if you can do that eight times across the day, you're going to rack up 10 minutes in a squat position in no time. Now, think about the benefit that that's going to have to your hip mobility, your ankle mobility, and you know, if you can manifest that into a prisoner squat with your hands behind your head, you know, you're going to work on thoracic mobility and whatnot, and you know, you're going to have a, a lower occurrence of neck pain and then hopefully they're not presenting to Cairo with headaches and, and you know, it's, you know, just a, you know, a few simple things like that tend to make a huge difference. Nice, nice, I like that. So what about then hip mobility? What, what are the keys there? Um, again, sorry to say it, but squats is the big one. <laughs> um, yeah, look, like I said, everyone I see with lower back pain has poor hip mobility. I think that's a, that's a pretty... That's a pretty close correlation there. Um, the main thing is just getting that squat pattern down to open the hips up. Um, I've got a few various hip stretches that I do um, with people where I'll, I'll get them, I don't know what it's called, but we have one knee on the ground, one foot out in front of you, you drive your hips forward. Yeah, uh, it's like a rifleman's posture, isn't it? Like a rifleman's yeah. pose. I always, that's what I always call it. I don't know what it's, it's supposed to be called. I don't, I don't have a name for it. I apologize. I just say get it on the ground and stretch it. And I just kind of have variations of that where I chuck bands around people's hips, and I think that sort of, I think that sort of works for a bit, for a bit of PNF sort of side of things anyway. And um, uh, just generally look at um, look at hamstring mobility a little bit as well, and, and just see what the hamstrings are doing. Um, it's I might actually add, it's not uncommon for me to see people with tight hips but loose hamstrings, and vice versa. Um, so it's not always hamstrings that are causing the problem, but there's definitely issues with hips. Um, so yeah, just various kind of mobility drills with that and foam rolling and then just get them to squat and, you know, just squat every day. You know, all my, (laughs) all my, all my clients on my programs will have three heavy squat sessions per week. And then on those off days, so on the Tuesday and the, and the Thursday, it's do some body weight squats, do some mobility work, get on your foam roller. Like don't, don't think just because I've given you an off day, it's go home and watch the bachelor. Like it's, it's, you know, get on your foam roller and do something for yourself anyway. Nice. Nice. You know, I've just realized that the reason I think of those as a rifleman's pose is back in the days when I was at uni, 
Um, yeah. We used and I used to drink back then. We used to we used to get into that position and skull beer and call it a rifleman skull. <laughs> oh, okay. so, so that's where I got it from. Just just in case anyone's wondering, they're probably not. Oh. But I kind of thought that was quite funny. I, I got I got to shoot a rifle a few weeks ago, which was a first wow. for me. But I didn't get into that pose anyway. So well, it's it's probably best that you don't skull beer at the same time anyway. So that's okay. yeah, um, yeah. I'm guessing so. You know, I've, <laughs> I've still I've still got the target here that I shot at, and my target accuracy was not brilliant. So let's. <laughs> Let's not introduce beer into the equation. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about shoulder mobility now, because you said that's yeah. a big one and the one that you're seeing a lot. So first of all, why are you seeing it a lot? And, and second of all, what can we do about it? Uh, why am I seeing it a lot? Um, to be really honest, it's after 600,000 years of evolution, people think they can treat their shoulders better than, than what was designed. Um, so, look, depending on whose statistics you believe, the human body is around about 600,000 years old. Um, you may have a, a different answer to that, but that's sort of broad, broadly the number that I float around. Um, I, look, people, people that will do a lot of isolation work in their shoulders, so a lot of front lateral raises, side lateral raises, like I said before, upright rows are a bit of a killer at the moment. Um, they're the ones that tend to develop really tight imbalances through like, the shoulders. Like nightclub muscles, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, people that are contending for the Mr. Stereosonic crown. Um, <laughs> uh, the, other, the other thing I tend to see is uh, a lot of bench press-related um, type shoulder problems. So um, I'll see people that, that are either... They're benching in a position where they have no scap retraction at all, so there's nothing holding that posterior chain in place, um, or they're, they're just their bar path is really terrible and the bar's coming around their collarbones or, or their upper pecs or something, and um, that's putting a lot of load up on the anterior deltoid. And I think a lot of people, on just sort of from a commercial sense, a commercial fitness sense, a lot of people will interpret anterior shoulder pain or pump or whatever you want to call it as their pecs when it's really not um so i see a lot of issues there um like i said my bread and butter has really become dealing with shoulder impingements and to be really honest the first thing i get people to do is just lift things over the head like i'll dis i'll get them to discontinue all isolation work and just replace it with pressing a bar over their head um people think i'm a little bit crazy but i teach people how to front squat and, and the reason I teach people to front squat is because when we're front squatting, we need a really upright posture, which really requires the thoracic to do what it needs to do. Um, and it's thoracic stability that tends to correlate to decent shoulders as well from what I've seen. Um, so teaching people how to front squat and teaching people how to overhead squat and, and that, that gets the shoulders moving the way that they're intended to. It uh, helps iron out any kind of muscular imbalances, which always tend to be anterior balances. We tend to be massively rounded forward, um, and that seems to resolve issues fairly quickly anyway. That's a great answer, actually, and it kind of brings me to another question I really wanted to ask you about, and, uh, and it sort of segued into it perfectly, and that was just around, I guess, the ideas around functional fitness versus rehab, you know, and so... When you look at people with shoulder issues like that, you know, one answer might be to say, well, they're doing these isolation exercises on the front of their shoulder, but, you know, if we want to rehab that, then we might do some isolation exercises on the back of the shoulder to try and balance it out a bit better, um, whereas it seems like the approach you're taking is more of a functional fitness approach of saying, well, let's just get the body back moving the way it's designed to and kind of almost let the rest of it take care of itself. You know, I'm not sure if that's the way you think about it or not, but I'd love to hear yeah, your comment on that. 
Yeah, you're, abso- you're absolutely correct. Um, so one thing I've noticed from um, particularly the first half of this year when I was working really closely with a, with a bunch of physios is um, um, when someone would come in with a, with a particular injury, um, be it whatever, the physios would go straight for the site of that injury and they'd say, oh, look, you've done this to this very specific area. Here's a very specific exercise to strengthen that very specific muscle. Um, versus yep. the people like myself, so the strength coaching guys that were working in the same building, we were, oh, okay, we are going to teach you how to move your shoulder the way that it should or move your hips the way that you should. Now, one of my physio friends, a um, guy called Peter Flynn, uh, um, Holden Hill Phys- Physiotherapy, he has a really good analogy that I just absolutely love. And it, he says he looks, he's, he's got a background in tennis and he looks at guys that have um, a lot of shoulder and elbow problems in tennis and he said he sees these shoulder and elbow problems but what he does is he looks downstream at the ankles and the hips and he goes, when you're swinging your tennis racket, are you winding up through your hips and your ankles? So are you rotating your torso to wind up your tennis stroke or are you winding up through your shoulder and your elbow and are you overloading and overclocking yourself through your upper body? And he's been quite successful in rehabilitating a lot of tennis tennis elbow and, and shoulder issues by looking at the way the whole body moves instead of just the one sore joint. Because um, I saw there was another guy. Um, do you know that guy, uh, Stop Chasing Pain, um, Perry something? I've forgotten his name. I reckon I've he, seen the website. I reckon, yeah, but I... he's an interesting Cairo out of America. He put up a really interesting Facebook status the other day, which was, the question is not what can I do to resolve this injury, it's what can I do to stop it from happening in the first place. Um, and I think what he's trying yeah, to say yeah. by that is, you know what, you, you've, done, you've done a particular injury because, don't ask me how to fix it, ask yourself, why did you do it in the first place and how am I not going to do it again anyway? So, but to go back to your original point, yeah, it's I take a very movement, uh, what you would call a functional movement approach to things anyway, and it's, you know, teach the body how to move the way that it wanted to and teach the body to operate as one functional unit, as much as I loathe the term functional, but work as one, <laughs> as, as one unit. Um, and then a lot of these chronic injuries probably won't occur or will at least see a reduce in the, the occurrence and severity of these chronic injuries anyway. So, so let's talk about some of the benefits of doing it that way rather than doing it as an isolation. Obviously, there's benefits in terms of muscle firing patterns you spoke about yeah. before, in terms of you know, learned neural patterns, uh, in terms of, I would say, lean muscle mass, in terms of developing those muscle, muscular stabilizers. You know, what else? What, else? You know, what are the benefits of it? Um, yeah, look, obviously the motor patterning is a big one. Um, the, uh, the motor patterning is going to carry over to everything we do as well. Um, so, um, for example, I was working with, um, I mean, now that I'm at Anytime Fitness at Blackwood, I've seen a couple of nurses from Flinders Medical Center, uh, they're all <laughs> reporting the same thing. It's, I've got to do a lot of manual lifting at work. I go, well, if you're going to do a lot of manual lifting at work, why are you training your biceps? And they go, well, because we've got to lift. And I go, well, what's the first thing that activates when you go to lift something? It's your abdominals. Like it's, it's protecting your spine. You're subconsciously yeah. doing it. So it's getting those movement patterns down. Um, a lot of the research at the moment is also showing that um, in terms of hypertrophy, so in terms of lean muscle mass, 
um, we're pretty much better off in a in a higher weight range as well. So depending on which research you look at, anywhere sort of around above 65, 70% of our one condition max um, is between or 65 and about 80, 85, 90% of our one repetition max seems to be the number that we're looking at in terms of hypertrophy. Um, and when we do... When we do a lot of big movements, so when we're doing our squats and our deadlifts and, and our jerks or our presses or whatnot, we are actually operating in that 80%, 90% of one repetition max. When we do a lot of isolation work, we're just simply picking up a weight that we have no idea where it is in terms of our rep max and just randomly moving it for the sake of moving it and only really strengthening up one muscle. So, you know, from a hypertrophy point of view, I think we're better off. From an injury prevention point of view, we're better off. And from just a day-to-day, like, even just for, even just for ADLs, like, your activities of daily living, you know, like, you know, if, if you've got to pick up a, a basket full of wet washing, you know, do you really want your legs to be stronger than your abdominals when you pick up a heavy basket of wet washing? No, you want your abdominals to be stronger than your legs because that's what's going to protect your back anyway. So, yeah. Beautiful. It makes perfect sense to me, mate. So only a few minutes left, but I'd love you to talk just a little bit about the importance of powerlifting. You know, many people will look at powerlifting and think, well, that's fine if you want to, you know, go to the Olympics, but I don't need powerlifting in my daily life. So why is that so important? Um, okay, so... Um, in strength and conditioning, we have a gold standard approach, and that's Olympic weightlifting. So Olympic weightlifting is our snatch and our clean and jerk and the derivatives around that. So around Olympic weightlifting is our squats and our deadlifts and our Romanian deadlifts and, and, and whatnot. Secondary to that, so below that gold standard is powerlifting. Now, powerlifting, we have our squat, our bench press, and our deadlift. So you can see the movements are actually quite similar to what we see in terms of Olympic lifting. And what we've seen over and over again in the literature is that for force production, for injury prevention, for hypertrophy, these are all the areas that we want to focus on the most. We don't want to be isolating muscles. We want to be using them as one big motor pattern. Um, So that's where I guess... For me personally, my background's always been in powerlifting, so that's kind of my bread and butter. Um, I'm always working on being a better Olympic lifting coach. I'm still not great at it, but I think I'm getting better every day. Um, so they're, they're obviously two very important and sort of very crucial aspects to work on. Um, one thing I'll say straight at the bat is if you walk into a gym and you don't know what you're doing, seek out help. If you feel like you're going to hurt yourself doing a squat or if you feel like you're going to hurt yourself doing a deadlift, guess what? You probably are. Um, so seek out help. Find a coach. There's more than a few of us around these days. Um, there's plenty of good people from one side of town to the other that I can, I'm happy to refer you to if you're out the other side of town from me. Um, and, and develop a knowledge and an understanding of, what, of the way these lifts work because it will be hugely beneficial to you in the long run. That's awesome, mate. So, you know, for people who want to find Ben, as you said, they can find him at Anytime Fitness in Blackwood. Um, they can go to bencove.com.au and find out heaps more information about Ben and, and information, videos and all sorts of stuff there. They can go to Ben Cove on Facebook or Ben Cove SC on Instagram. So thanks so much, Ben. Had a great time. Great chat today again. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks cool. for doing that twice. Twice is nice. It's too easy. So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. 
This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.